Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royful Brown, who is in the Bay Area in Northern California. Today we are joined by a writer, sparky person, me old pal, me old muck and Mick Wright in Norwich. Uh, and we have the ex-deputy head of policy for the Liberal Democrats, Steve O'Neill in Brixton. And uh, we have Emma Burnell, um, wonderful person and writer, uh, who's in Walthamstow. And um, he's not here at the moment, but we will be joined uh, by uh, political pundit Mike Holden, who is in Burnley. Well, at the moment, he's actually in his car rushing home. So this week, we've given you not one, but two slices of the uh, mid-Atlantic pie. Today, we've decided to look at what's going to happen to Britain post-January the 1st. Out of the ongoing soap opera drama that we call Brexit, just when you thought the UK was close to striking a big trade deal with the EU, coronavirus steps in and says, hey, not so fast. Joining us now from Kent, England, is Bloomberg's Brexit editor, Edward Evans, with all of the details. Ed, in your latest Brexit newsletter, you report that in private, officials had been growing increasingly confident we'd get a trade deal by as soon as early next week. The key word there is is had. So uh, bring us up to speed. Tell us what's happening. Yes, well, uh, yesterday uh, it emerged that a member of the EU negotiating team had tested positive for COVID, and that has forced both sides to break off uh, face-to-face discussions at what is really a critical point um, in the negotiations. Now, it might not be quite the setback at first appears. If you go back to March, uh, both chief negotiators, Michel Barnier and David Frost, were forced into self-isolation. But of course, back then, there were nine months of the, the transition period to go. Now we've just got 41 days hmm. to go till Britain's final departure from the EU single market. So this adds an extra element uh, of risk to the process at really a very, very delicate time. Has COVID reset the Brexit dial? Um, How much has the British public forgotten all about our divorce from Europe in this year because of the pandemic? Steve O'Neill, why don't you have the first take, sir? It's felt a lot like they have, but in fits and starts for me, because I was was thinking a few months ago that, uh, I think I probably put this out on Twitter in different places, that I thought Brexit was coming back. And I keep thinking it's coming back, but it never quite does because COVID keeps... Uh, in the news. Uh, I think the big question is, will we be thinking about Brexit in a few months' time when we actually, well, even less than that now, when we actually leave the transition period? And I think that's a bit of an open question. Uh, We might feel as a disastrous no deal, or um, that might get lost in the kind of economic turmoil of the pandemic. I think time will tell. Mick, uh, one of the things which, which, uh, let's say, us Remainers believed about Brexit is that as soon as we transitioned out, there was going to be a massive run on the economy. Looks like that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, because we're in a transition period, you can't really say like, that Brexiteers love to do this thing where they say, well, it hasn't happened. See, the disaster hasn't happened, but we've just delayed the disaster. 
the, the problems are, are, are multifarious and, and I've got a, a good number of um, contacts in the civil service of a couple of people working very high up in DEFRA. They're really concerned about this. I've got someone who, I know someone who works in fishing policy. She says it's a nightmare because the government is obsessed with fishing policy, but they keep saying things that we just can't do. They say, oh, we should just do this. And you go, well, international law is X, Y, and Z, right? International waters is a pretty defined thing. So it's a huge problem. Logistics is a huge problem. They, they, their idea of turning Kent into a car park is madness. Um, we know that we need, um, you know, they assure us that vaccines and things will come through fine because they are like category A must get through and they'll they'll do what it takes. But we've seen that this is a government who during the pandemic have been um, logistics idiots, you know, spending 20 to hundreds of millions of pounds with companies that have no background in this. Before that, we had the fake um, ferry company, you know, that was money that was just burnt effectively. So no, it's just, it's coming. And, and I think there would have always been a slight dip, uh, dip down in Brexit talk over this year as they're basically the negotiations uh, stuff drips out of them but but there wasn't a lot to get a hold on but january is going to be a shit show and it's my birthday in january so i'm doubly pissed off emma i kind of feel that we've got to at least put the most positive spin on on brexit um how can we do that i don't know (laughs) (laughs) okay is the, there must there must be somewhere where there is potentially an opportunity for Britain and the British economy or the British people, surely? We are entering Brexit at a time of world economic crisis. We are cutting off our legs at the same time as our arms are being cut off. I mean, it's just, just we let's not, you know, we're not the Black Knight. Let's not pretend that things are going better than they are. You know, it's not my job to tell you things are going really well when they're not. It's my job to tell you the truth. Mm. Uh, Mike Holden, uh, we uh, welcome, sir. Hopefully, you didn't have to uh, speed to get home in time to to join us. Uh, law breaking's um, allowed in the UK now. It's okay. It was unintentional, so it's all right. Well done. <laughs> One of the big uh, divides between uh, the, the metropolitan bits of uh, the United Kingdom and, let's say, the smaller towns, and uh, without wanting to be pejorative about it, the smaller mill towns was its attitude to a closed or open. Britain. Just for our international listeners, tell us how people of Burnley voted in the Brexit referendum and what they hope uh, Britain is going to become on January the 1st. Okay, Uh, well in the Brexit referendum, Burnley was quite strongly pro-Brexit. I think uh, a lot of people had uh, taken the line that the years of hardship that had happened in Burnley and the deindustrialisation and reduction in services were down to external factors rather than the government. And uh, so hence they voted Brexit um, quite highly. And that followed on in uh, last year when they voted for the first time in many, many years, well, ever, I think, um, for a a Tory MP. I was going to say a a non-Labour. They voted a a non-Labour MP uh, a couple of elections ago. But, uh, yeah, they voted for a Tory MP. So, okay, I'm a typical modal Burnley voter. I I vote traditionally Labour. I voted Tory in the last election. I voted for Brexit. What do I hope Britain will become post-January the 1st? I wish I could tell you, honestly, because I've had these discussions with people and we're pretty much at the, at the stage now of, well, we want to be out and that's all. There used to be arguments being put forward about how good it would be, uh, how we would have freedom to do things, how £350 million a week would come from uh, the EU to the NHS. And um, and now they've given up on those arguments because they've been proven to be false time and time again. So basically now it's just, well, we're out, so that's all that matters really. Mick, you spent a lot of time in Ireland. Could you give us a, a sense of how us leaving the European Union is potentially going to weaken the United Kingdom in terms of our relationship with Northern Ireland and how potentially uh, a united Ireland is a much closer reality. Well, the word potentially for me, I don't think it's a potential thing. I think 
I, I, if, if I were a betting man, and I'm not because I think gambling is a bad thing, um, I would put a lot of money on the reunification of Ireland within the next 20 years because it, uh, probably 10 even, if you want to talk that way. Some people are saying five, but I, I just think the wheels of politics on the island of Ireland take a little bit longer to shake out than that. But no, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm working on um, various projects which involve talking to um, members of what I would describe as, uh, well, I guess the paramilitary community or the pre or former paramilitaries who might start being paramilitaries again quite soon. And one of them was telling me, yeah, we think there will be a border again and we can't wait because we will blow up that border. I, I'm, I'm politically always have thought that there should be a United Ireland. So in some respects, I think it's a good thing that Ireland moves towards a United Ireland, but I don't think it's a good thing in the sense that it will be done um, in a very dangerous way. We know that the unification or the changing of borders around countries can be hugely, hugely um, traumatic. Look at partition in India. Basically, in the Republic, they think we are idiots. And in the North, it's really unsettling. You know, it's, everything is really difficult. Trade is not going to work well there. It's very foolish. And the other thing that we have done is we've made Ireland... Um, the gateway to Europe for, for the Americans even more than it already was. Like the US is, looks to Ireland already, which has given its favorable tax treatment for companies like Apple. And more and more, if, if American companies are trying to do business in Europe, they're going to use Ireland when they used to use Ireland and the UK. So, you know, we've, we've put ourselves up shit creek and discovered that the paddle is also made of shit. Emma. Mick has mentioned that the UK is no longer going to be the the Anglosphere gateway into the EU um, if you are a global company. And London has already experienced, um, if not a contraction, at least growth in the city of London has stopped. How else do you think uh, Brexit will uh, affect the city? of London, the wider city of London, not just the financial centre. Are we going to potentially see an end to this rapid growth of, um, of flats, shall we say, for foreign speculators? I mean, it's going to be really bad for London because half our citizens probably don't know what their status is going to be. And, you know, not half maybe, but, you know, a great many people who live in London have come over from the EU. I don't think the big problem is that speculators won't be able to afford flats in Stratford anymore or won't want to buy them. And um, frankly, they can bugger off. You can put, build some actual social housing. So I, potentially, to, is that going to be an upside? You won't have any money to build social housing. And it's not like we're in, we've got a government that's going to empower local government. But every day in this pandemic, John, we see evidence of independent decision-making in Wales, in Northern Ireland, and here in Scotland and few would doubt that it has changed the political landscape. But more on that in a minute, because two one of those big decisions in Scotland, travel bans from 6pm tomorrow, it will become illegal to go in or out of areas into the highest two levels of restrictions without a reasonable excuse. That includes people coming from England, from elsewhere in the UK, it includes cross-border communities, and it's caused something of a row. But Nicola Sturgeon says it's the right thing to do, even if it's not popular. And the polling evidence shows that she herself, Nicola Sturgeon, is remarkably popular in Scotland. And that same polling evidence suggests Boris Johnson is not. Steve, let's go north of the border. And I, I, I don't know why I've called upon you to talk about Scotland, but you've drawn the short straw, sir. So um, if you have any Scottish blood in you, uh, now, now is the time to embrace it. Um, Scotland voted against Brexit. The Scottish government believes that staying in the EU is best for Scotland. Again, for our international listeners, could you just give us a rough overview of the, the position of the Scottish government vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Brexit and potentially moves to uh, dismantle Scotland's participation in the United Kingdom? I'll caveat it with saying, yes, I don't have any Scottish blood in me and um, I'm not an expert in Scottish politics. But I think the things that are pretty clear to anyone observing are that, um, yes, Scotland voted to stay in the EU um, and the Scottish Parliament right now, which is the devolved administration in Scotland, um, is run by the Scottish National Party, who, of course, as the name implies, wants an independent Scotland. Uh, and they have been using Brexit as a justification for a follow-up referendum. Um, there was one in 2014. They want another one to try and get independence from the UK. That started off, 
I would say sort of mixed in, in terms of was it working? What, what were the polls looking like? But once you plus plus the kind of spectre of Brexit with the pandemic, it seems like that has really boosted the case for independence. So the last few polls that I've seen have got independence uh, sort of uh, at about 54% uh, sort of popularity. Uh, and you think about the result of the referendum in 2014, uh, that was something like 45, 55 for staying in the UK. So it looks pretty bad at the moment in terms of uh, what the Scottish people want. Um, having said that, these things can change. And we're only talking about uh, not even six years ago, it was the flip side. So that could change, but it is looking gloomy for the future of the UK. One of the things that's, that's been uh, more striking recently about uh, the, the call for Scottish independence has been that um, Boris Johnson and uh, the Tories are, are constantly arguing that the, the 2014 referendum was a once-in-a-generation event uh, and therefore it can't be repeated. But um, in that referendum, the remain argument was the only way that Scotland can stay in Europe is to stay in the UK. So the the, the main premise of, of, of the independence argument uh, last time around was was completely false prospectus. Uh, they were told the only way they could stay in Europe was to stay as part of the UK. They stayed was part of the UK and a few years later we're leaving Europe uh, against their will. So uh, you can't you can't think of a stronger case for a, a, a rerun of the referendum, in, in my opinion. Uh, Mick, right? Um, there's 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 one really important caveat to make about Scottish independence vis-a-vis -vis getting back in the EU. Though, but getting back into the EU would be quite tricky, as there are a lot of countries within the EU that would not like a part of what they consider a larger country to be allowed to re-enter as an independent country because that is catnip for the Catalans, right? And the Spanish don't want any part of that. Same for the Basque region. And there are other countries within the EU who have similar issues with independence movements who would have no interest in allowing an independent an independent Scotland back in the EU. Also, independent Scotland would have some financial issues as well in terms of um, what it owns and and how that works. So we've got a lot of trouble coming post fully moving out into Brexit as well, because if the country starts to break up, it's even more problematic. And I think England sometimes has this attitude of like, well, the Scots lean on us anyway, let them go. But actually, the UK starts to break up. And how do we look internationally? How do we work as we slowly fragment? I think that's a, a, an excellent point. There is, uh, as, as you say, Mick, um, if I am um, the Spanish government, I want no part of Scotland coming into the EU. If I am the Belgian government, if Belgium even has a government, I want no part of it because of what it means potentially for the fragmentation of Belgium. Ditto Italy with various separatist movements there. Uh, you're, you're absolutely spot on. Um, Emma, imagine you are an EU bureaucrat how do you imagine your relationship with the united kingdom post 2021 much like my relationship with my ex-husband <laughs> <laughs> well considering that the few thousand people that listen to this podcast aren't au fait with the details of your relationship you with your, your ex-husband ex <laughs> i've spoken to my ex-husband since 2013 and you know I, if i were a, a european bureaucrat that's very much how i'd feel about my ex-member there's going to be practical considerations though aren't there so how should europe treat uh the united kingdom on a, on a very kind of practical level um one one thing what one thing just just a little bit of a setup for for our listeners on a practical level what actually the united kingdom uh, leaving the EU has actually done is strengthen support for the average uh, EU citizen for the institution because they've seen it's been a mess. Yeah, it has been a mess. Um, I mean, we'll, obviously, we will still have some semblance of a relationship. Um, we'll be doing trade, even if it's trade on ridiculous terms, because we've gone for a no deal, and which probably won't last very long once we realise how completely devastating that is. I suspect we'll get a skeletal deal that will be pulled out and shown off in a triumph right at the last minute. But um, Michelle Barnier's staff getting COVID hasn't helped that. Mm. Uh, we're now right up to the wire. We should have gone for the extension, but they can't do it because it's ideologically just anathema to them. So, but it's, it's madness that we've got a massive, you know, a world conquering crisis with a pandemic and they're going, yeah, we'll, we'll still manage to, to toss this off 
before. And the other thing is, you can't leave it till January 31st. It's not possible. The other, and the final thing I would say, I mean, just jumping off what Emma just said is, frankly, you look at the technical side of this, it doesn't work. There's hundreds of pages of forms that lorries are going to have to fill in. And I, uh, with all due respect to my friends who are lorry drivers, they, they didn't get in the business for filling in forms. It's not really their area of expertise. Um, yeah, so... And I just think... Um, you look at the way that our government behaves over pretty much everything and you're like well why would you want to have a close relationship with them certainly diplomatically um you know we can work out trade um but i can't imagine that they're going to want to have a particularly close diplomatic relationship with this current government now maybe they're more pragmatic in europe than we are and they won't just look at it on the short on that short-term basis but right now i you know why would you have a diplomatic relationship with people who behave so undiplomatically? But the other problem, the, I, I think the reason we didn't go for the extension, um, if I'm going to be fair to the government for once, which I don't like being, um, the problem is in the middle of this pandemic, the Venn diagram of people who disbelieve the pandemic and the Venn diagram of people who get very angry about Brexit is a circle. I mean, very angry in a pro-Brexit way. That's a circle. Um, open, but, and I, I think that one of the reasons they didn't go for the extension is because it would have caused more difficulties in terms of, of enforcement um, of coronavirus measures. Mike, you seem to be nodding your head furiously there at one point. Yeah, 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 I wasn't really uh, asking to chip in. I was just agreeing with what Mick and Emma have been saying, that uh, it's immensely complicated um, uh, relationship we have, we have with Europe, and that, is got, that relationship doesn't go away in um, six weeks' time. We still have all those complications to live with. It's like taking three bricks out of a wall of Lego. We've got stuff like mobile phone roaming, right? Yeah. That's still not sorted out. We've got um, health health protection and coverage across Europe when you uh, England you know European British citizens go through Europe and don't have any health coverage and don't realize they don't and then they're up shit creek when they're in a in a hospital and having to you know sorry we won't treat you unless you've got a ton of money sorry about that it's the same rules you've got in the UK for us um, when you've got when you've got a government that rules by three word slogans uh it's very difficult for them to then bring in the nuance and and they seem to be now just basically pointing the fingers at, uh, as Mick said earlier, the, ho the holiers, businesses, and just saying, well, you should be prepared without telling them what the preparations need to be. Yeah, the advertising constantly says, be prepared mm. for the check. Our relationship is changing. And then when you get onto the websites, there's no detail. <laughs> and I, I've, look, I've looked, I've been trying to see the paperwork. I've been pushing people I know in departments to leak things to me. But ultimately, like, it isn't there. It is, it's not even that it can be leaked. It isn't there. A new trade agreement is almost most definitely going to raise tariffs and, and cause some level of inflation. Uh, the cost of travel and communications, and we just talked about mobile phone uh, roaming, is most probably going to increase. The UK is going to have to pay billions in euros for its divorce bill. We just we have various commitments which were made, which we can't just because we're leaving. We still have to pay for. And uh, constraints on immigration could hurt our labour force. Steve, so that is the reality of Brexit, uh, right, rightly or wrongly. Um, what options does the UK have globally? Who can we cosy up to? I think it, it, it's difficult, uh, this question, because obviously historically over the last few decades, we've been close to other Western nations, so Europe and the US uh, and a few others. If we're saying that post-Brexit, we're going to be less close to Europe, which to an extent is going to be necessarily true, can we be close to the US? The US has a lot of problems right now. It's got better. We've got, we're going to have President Biden, but their internal politics is difficult. Whether Boris Johnson and Joe Biden are going to really have a great relationship, I think, is to be seen. It's, it's not obvious what we do. What we are is a medium-sized country that pull, sort of punches above its weight. So how that translates into a kind of uh, a foreign policy, a kind of strategy, uh, I'm not sure. And I think it's fairly clear that so much, at the moment we have slogans like Global Britain, but I've really been struggling uh, and I've asked various people who should be in the know about what this should mean. Uh, and I'm really struggling to get a clear answer. The only time we were really global Britain was when we were invading places. 
but really the climate's not there to do that anymore. £48 billion going into the, into the military, for what reason? For what reason? Other than that they just like big toys. And no pay increase for public sector workers. No, incredible. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The number one job for the Prime Minister of Canada when they represent our country abroad is to stand up for the national interest and our values as a country. We must also foster strong communities with our allies. Putting the national interest first doesn't mean we have to go alone. For the last three decades, an uneasy compromise has existed with the engagement of non-market economies and countries who resist democracy and rules-based diplomacy. Our belief as Conservatives in free markets and the positive influence of capitalism has fought for equal position with our commitment to international freedom and democracy when it comes to Communist China. As Conservatives, we normally believe that tariffs are bad for consumers. Free trade is supposed to lead to more free nations and greater prosperity as the market allocates economic resources to places that allow for goods to be produced and marketed for the greatest benefit of the greatest number of people. I still believe in free trade, Madam Speaker, but I also believe in fair trade where countries follow the rules. Free trade amongst free and democratic nations. I believe in free markets, free trade, even free movement with the UK, Australia, and New Zealand and Kanzak, Madam Speaker. I don't want to sound like uh, an imperialist, some old fogey, right? But right-wing politicians in Canada and Australia and New Zealand and uh, even Jeremy Hunt, the ex-Foreign uh, Secretary in the United Kingdom, just as one person here, have got rather excited about Kanzuk, an idea that there will be a loose economic space of Canada, Australia, Britain and, and New Zealand. Now, purely because I'm a soft, cuddly lefty, if nothing else, free movement of travel for young adults between uh, all of those countries is not at all a bad thing. Mike, I'm going to come to you because I'm presuming that the typical modal voter in Burnley will get quite excited about the ex-white Commonwealth countries having a closer relationship with a post-Brexit Britain. Well, I, I think you're right. They, they are, but it's because they don't understand the situation. I mean, you, you, uh, there's a map over to this shoulder here that's for my nine-year-old. The Kansas countries, they're a bit further away than France, Germany, Spain, Italy. And Hence, I led in with free movement of travel as opposed to some overarching trade deal, which is going to true. boost UK trade because it's not going but to I've, I've actually got a, a friend of mine who has a, an apartment in Spain who still to this day now insists that uh, everything will continue as it would post uh, January because the bar owners in Spain won't allow 
there's not to be a deal. There'll be uproar if we don't get the, the free movement and the free travel and the free trade that we used to get. And I swear this is true. Mick Wright. Well, look, the other thing about this, right, and I, I guess it does my head in this kind of thing, is that this sounds like a, 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 a random anecdote, but it's not. The New European said to me, go up to Rotherham, write about Rotherham, and, and because of you know all the stuff that's gone in in Rotherham and, and the amount Rotherham wrote about Brexit, uh, voted for Brexit. So I went up to Rotherham, I spent a day in Rotherham, sat in the pubs of Rotherham talking to people in the pubs who were in there all day, people coming in from working, people coming in from factories, all kinds of stuff. And the, the interesting thing, there was two things. One is that that article never got published because I wrote a thing that was actually very sympathetic towards the Brexit voters of Rotherham, even though I don't politically agree with them, because I could see why they had voted that way. They voted that way because they went... Um, free movement of people is useless to us because we can't afford to move around in Europe, right? They voted for that because they felt uh, left behind because money spent from European funding, even though it was there, they didn't see it. It was in buildings they never used, stuff they never did. And that was the big problem with the, the Remain campaign was this sense of like, oh, what will happen when our kids can't go abroad for their years abroad? And you've got people in northern towns going, We've not, we can't do that anyway. So with this Kanzak thing, that's even more insane if you think about it, because yes, it's possible if we have free movement to Canada or Australia and New Zealand, brilliant, right? But you still need to have a fair amount of money to do that. It's not cheap and it's only going to get more expensive. Travel's going to get more expensive because of all sorts of things. Post-COVID, travel's going to be even harder. The thing drives me crazy and you talk to the Australians and they say, yeah, you know, we might do a bit of trade with you, but you're not our biggest concern. We've got concerns within our area of our sphere of influence here in the Pacific. You know, we're connected to you in various ways, but you're sort of an anachronism. Emma can't disagree with what Mick said. Right. However, I'm just trying to get in the minds of a, of a Brexit voter. And I think some of those older Brexit voters definitely had imperialistic, jingoistic vibes, didn't they? And at least this is, you know, the empire striking back almost. So from a symbolic point of view, uh, a little bit of free travel for, for young adults between the ex-white bits of the Commonwealth. It feels like it's global Britain. We're globally doing things. Um, I don't think that was their motive. I mean, yeah, there was a certain amount of jingoism, but that was about going it alone, not um, going on holiday to Brisbane. You know, this was, this was a, we don't want to be part of that gang, not we want to be part of someone else's gang. For a start, most of Europe is white. So, you know, okay, they don't yeah, speak don't English. speak English. They don't speak English. Do you know what I mean? They're like... I speak a goddamn sight more English than I speak Italian or French. You can go to Canada, they have pubs there, you know, you can go to Australia. Fish They're also fish. quite racist sometimes, so great. Yeah, brilliant. Steve O'Neill, please tell me that there is some level of a global future for Britain uh, post-2021. I must admit, I am um, softly, very softly, lukewarmly in favour free movement of people's between between these countries because i just like free movement of countries anywhere to be honest with you so i see this as a very minor upside in this whole mess which, which is brexit but please tell me uh, that um the country that we all belong to has um some geopolitical weight post 2021 whether it's with kanzuk or just whatever the heck it is i'm actually happy to while i was in uh, and all of it and campaigned and everything else there is a tendency to be sore losers, to be honest, and to exaggerate some of the bad effects that could come. So I'll give you a more positive sort of look at what Britain could look like on the global stage. So we are still in prominent in the UN Security Council. Same with NATO. We mentioned defence. Defence might not be as important as a priority public sector pay and the rest of it, but it is important in the current global climate, and we still have an important defence presence. We have an amazing kind of soft power presence around the world, and yeah, that's from the Archers to the BBC to the Premier League and things like that. And um, even the Crown. And, and even the Crown. Until recently, we had probably the best international development aid department in the world. There's a lot of great things about Britain. We had a bit of leadership. But that's the thing, Steve, if we had had a bit of leadership. No, but we could easily have a bit of leadership in the, not under this government, I doubt, but we could do in the near future. There's a lot that we could do. What's difficult, what no one's worked out is, is kind of what the future of the world looks like. Because what we've got is we've had this system we've had probably since the Second World War of kind of Western dominated kind of UN and not perfect, never perfect, but it was this rules based global system. And, th and there's some good things to be said about it. Right now, that is being hugely challenged we've got regionalization we've got powers like china to lesser extent russia 
I'm sure you can make arguments about what the regional situation is in, say, the Middle East and the rest. Where the kind of role that Britain used to have as part of the global rules-based system fits in with that, I don't know. But we've got to work that out. Um, And there's no reason why we can't be influential in all the ways I've just described. I want a political leader to stand up and sort of articulate a vision for this. Hmm. I'm going to say amen to you, brother. I think it's very easy for us as losers in the Brexit debate to think it's all going to be doom and gloom. And very obviously, there's a reason why we voted... uh, actually to remain because we believe there's much more upside if we remained in Europe. But we do have, and and me being outside of the country as much as I am, I do in part see how some bits of the world actually view Britain. And it's much more positive than I think some of us lefties in Brexit actually believe. Mike, I do believe, as somebody whose parents are from the Commonwealth, from, from Jamaica, your average Jamaican has a much more positive view of of some aspects of Britain and also with the institution of the Commonwealth. Is there a way of which one thing we could do going forward is to be much more of an advocate for human rights, LGBTQ, equalisation throughout those member countries within that institution, that we could use our preeminent position culturally within that organisation to help to, to do things like that? Yes, there obviously is, but I can't see how that can possibly work under the government we've got. There are several people who came over on the Windrush who don't maybe see the UK in, in, in as, as rosy a light as you've painted. I mean, uh, no, but but that's that's slightly a, that's slightly a different thing, and the whole issue to the Windrush is a massive stain on the the last Tory government. And the current one who are not... And and the current one, and the current one. But let's just put Windrush to one side. Um, There's a reason why countries like Rwanda, which were not at all ever British, and Mozambique joined the Commonwealth. There's a reason why they did. So, So there is value, though I must admit I struggle to see it, but other countries do see value in being part of the Commonwealth. Even though, I must admit, I struggle other than maybe pushing human rights and things of that ilk to see a role for the wider Commonwealth. We're not just talking about your Australias and your New Zealand. We're talking about your Indias, Indias, your Pakistans, your Cameroons and uh, your Nigerias. So there is value in this loose organisation which broadly shares some system of governance and of civil rights broadly, very broadly. Very broadly is the, is the key word there, the key phrase. Because um, you, you're kind of harking back a little bit there to good old British values of fair play and uh, uh, those kind of ideas that in the current government just don't seem to be working out. They're, they're reducing foreign aid budget to pay for bonds. Right. I like Britain. I, I, this this whole crap that comes from the right about how the left doesn't left talks Britain down. That's not the case, right? You know these idiots like Lawrence Fox out there going, "Oh, we shouldn't uh, be doing down our history." Unfortunately, our history is pretty bloody. And one of the things we did with our history was, as the empire was falling apart, we got millions of records and burnt them to make sure that the actual reality of what the British Empire was pretty much destroyed, right? We just got rid of that history, made sure we pushed that away because it was a pretty bloody enterprise. And I get that countries have seen that there were some economic benefits and there is some sort of connection to the motherland and all that kind of stuff. That is a, that is a, that, that's a reality of propaganda. We were very good at doing propaganda for the empire, but the reality of the empire was a very different thing. And I really also hate this horseshit about us being bad losers over Brexit. It's not about that anymore for me. I think that the country has been hollowed out. We are living in a kleptocracy. That You look at London, vast amounts of London, than now are, uh, and, and big uh, UK businesses are owned by the Saudis or the Chinese or the Russians. It is like one of those insects whose brain is controlled by a parasitic organism. You look at the Tory party, its biggest donors now are, are, are foreign individuals, a lot of them Russians, a lot of them Saudis who get what they want, right? We've become a place for international crime to happen. British values, is a, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's like... Um, Patsy Kensit and Liam Gallagher lying on a Union Jack bedspread on the front of Vanity Fair during the Britpop years, right? That is just 
bullshit and propaganda and marketing. And it's fine. Britain's very good at marketing. And our soft power is good. I don't deny the Premier League is good, right? But the Premier League is a organization that puts very little back in it's going to let the EFL fall apart our arts are being destroyed by the Tories all the good things about Britain are getting shit canned by these people I'm sorry if it's not positive enough for you Roy Phil but it's a reality like Emma said earlier and I fully agree with her it's not our job to say everything's great it's important to say this country is on serious problems and the fundamental underpinnings of this country have been dug under the foundations are falling apart right okay Emma Burnell. Let's say I agree with everything that Mick has just said. And in part, I agree with large swathes of it. <laughs> my, my position as podcast host, you at least need to somewhat play the middle ground, whether you believe it or not. Try and have a nod and a wink to the other side and see is there another argument to this. However, we are about to leave the European Union and we need to forge a path forward. So all of what Mickey said is correct. How do we do that? And Bill's, it's going to sound incredibly trite, not only a better Britain, but actually have a meaningful global role because whether we want it or not, globally, this country punches way above its weight. As somebody sat here in California, half the people I know are soft Anglophiles. They listen to Radio 4. They buy English books. They like the Premier League, etc., etc. Right? So it's not me wrapping myself up in the Union Jack. These are just facts. When I go to Jamaica, people have a complicated view of Britain. On one part, they will talk about the colonial history, but will also harken back to relative political stability. And they quite like going to visit their family in the UK. It's a pleasant experience. These are facts, right? What Mick has said, I'm going to say that I in large part agree. But well, all the things Nick, I said are Nick, facts too. Nick, You've got to put it Nick, in context. Nick, you always do this though. You, what you do is you say your bit and you go, these are facts. And Mick just had a rant, right? You no, your facts Nick, are right, but I can contextualize your facts in any other way as well. Mick, I said it's very in large part, I agreed with what you said. Emma, how does the country look forward? Um, well, I think we're going to have a very difficult decade, and I don't think there's there's much doubt about that. Between coronavirus and Brexit, that's just a fact, if you like. I think that we need to sort out our economy. Um, it, we need to rebalance it. Um, we need to stop. I mean, and I'm you know sitting in North London, East London. We need to completely rebalance our economy and, you know, uh, we need to accept that the conditions that led people to make these choices were bad. You know, you, you've got to understand why people who live in the towns uh, and voted for Brexit did so, when really the only work option they've got is working in bloody sports direct for like 3p an hour. All right, Emma, so we're going to, we need to rebalance the economy. economy. That, that's how you start. Uh, you start by rebalancing the economy and you invest in the arts and you do those two things. So you do the hard and you do the soft. Mike Holden, is HS2 going to help start the rebalancing of the British economy? That surely this high-speed rail link is going to come to the northwest. It's going to link Birmingham and Manchester. All good things are going to flow. It's going to be the train line that just brings milk and honey. Royfield, I'm in my 50s. That HS2 will never reach Burnley in my lifetime. It will never reach Manchester in my lifetime. It may reach Birmingham if I, if we're lucky. Um, it's come at an absolutely uh, the worst time. It's come at a time when everything's going electric. So uh, in a few years' time, we'll all be driving electric cars and there may be a better ways of getting from A to B while this massive infrastructure project is, is chewing up large parts of the country. No. All that's ever been said from my angle on, on HS2 is it makes it easier for people in the Midlands to get to London. So it, it sucks in more people, more resources and more money into the centre rather than out into the regions. So it's, right. it's the opposite way around. You and I, sir, are both provincials, right? I, I come from the, the largest city in the United Kingdom, uh, Birmingham, right? The city of London's only got a thousand people that live there, much larger. 
Uh, so I'm from the provinces, as are you, sir. Right. Um, tell us and three me. things that the UK government should do to help to uh, rebalance the UK economy from your position up there in Burnley in the northwest. Um, three things. Well, three of the things that they've said they would do would help. I mean, uh, the idea of levelling up, uh, as we've touched on previously, is a good idea. It's, it's, it's Northern Powerhouse all over again. Empowering the North, empower, providing the resources would be a great idea. It's a slogan, and it's a meaningless slogan when there's no evidence of it happening, and that's the problem. Yeah, but but yeah, but we're trying to be positive. So what should they do, as opposed to it's just sloganeering what they've said so far, and, and nothing good has come of it. Okay, yeah, uh, making good on that promise, uh, leveling up, uh, providing resources, providing transport links, genuine transport links uh, across the north. I mean, if you if you drew a line from uh, Liverpool through Manchester, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. If you drew a line across there, there's an awful lot of businesses, an awful lot of towns, an awful lot of cities, an awful lot of people who are within travelling time of each other that would be equivalent of a few miles in London. I mean, I've worked in London and delivery drivers have said to me, I can't get there now. It's three hours away and they're two miles away. <laughs> and, you know, so um, improving the transport links would be a huge bonus if they were properly done. And providing a, a northern, well, again, to, to, to use a slogan that's been used before meaninglessly, a northern powerhouse, a northern regional area, wider regional area that is interconnected properly. Steve, is one of the positive things from the coronavirus um, hitting the UK and Brexit going to be that the economic weight that London has over the rest of the country is going to be neutered. As I said earlier on in the show, if you look at um, in terms of economic performance, London has um, stalled uh, last year, and this is before coronavirus. Has London overheated? Has London's wings been clipped? And is that a good thing for the rebalancing of the UK economy? Is it going to be good for your East Anglias, for, for your East Midlands, West Midlands, North East, North West, Wales, Scotland, etc.? Does this mean that we have a generational opportunity to look to rebalance the UK economy? Um, I don't know whether actually London... Growing less fast is a good thing for anyone else, or, or whether, or I haven't seen data on whether it was caused by a pandemic or whatever else. But I do think there's a political opportunity to rebalance, and I think it's a really real imperative to. And we should be doing things like building infrastructure, not being so slow about it. Um, I think there's also a, a really good case for devolutions. We've seen to come out of the pandemic the sort of role of metro mayors. I, I, I quite like that. I want to see sort of local leadership as well as I want to see national leadership. And I think it's important that you know people should be thinking about Manchester as a global city, like we think of London as a global city and other places in the UK. So I don't know about the econo economics of it, but I think there is a massive political opportunity to do this. And I think the government or any government of the UK and regionally should be really focusing on it. As a proud Brummie, considering that Birmingham is twice the size of Manchester, we are by far the more global city than Manchester. So we're getting the money first. Emma Burnell, we're going to start to, uh, to to wind this down. Why don't you have the last word? I was going to say you're going to be positive and upbeat, but then Mick's going to accuse me of just, just wanting to be positive and upbeat and somewhat jingoistic. So um, 2021 is just around the corner. It's going to be a bright new Britain. Uh, I think that's unlikely, but I do want to pick up on something that uh, was just said. Um, because I do think that one of the things that this time has proven is the the vital importance of devolution, local government, metro mayors, um, and the way that they have stepped up, up against the way the government has stepped back, has been really impressive. So um, that is, if you want a positive, that for me, I think people now really see more value in local government, uh, and that's got to be a good thing. I'm going to say amen to that, sister. I think it's one of the easiest catalysts to igniting local economies, actually letting local cities raise more money from local rates. We shouldn't be getting, was it, two thirds of our money from central government. Actually make local politics actually mean something. We need to fix these streets and, and actually we need to pay for this uh, locally. Uh, couldn't agree with that more.
whatever our thoughts and feelings are about Brexit, and very obviously all the panic here were utterly uh, remainers, uh, Brexit is going to happen. And it's kind of is my way, unfortunately, that I always try and say that at least that my glass is half full and not half empty. And in the spirit of that, right, I see Steve O'Neill is nodding his head. Um, in, in the spirit of that, it's takeaways of the week where we try and put um, a positive spin on something which we have seen, read, noticed or felt in the last seven days. Steve Positive O'Neill, that's going to be your nickname for this podcast uh, now, sir. Why don't you go first? Give us a takeaway of the last seven days, sir. I'm quite happy with uh, being, being Steve Positive O'Neill. Both in this chat and the chat last week, I was really thinking about like British values and Britishness, about the crown and things like that. And, you know, my, my takeaway is mostly uh, actually it is, it is positive. I'm, I, I you know I watch I watch our different shows. I was watching BBC World this week and other things, and I think there's there is a kind of uh, decency, a politeness, a nice way of doing things in Britishness, and I still think that what is one of the reasons people around the world like Britain and will continue to do so despite all the gloom and doom around Brexit. Thank you, sir. British values, niceness, civility, politeness. Mick Wright, all those things sum you up to a treat. What has been your takeaway of the last seven days? Absolute, absolutely. Uh, taking the mickey there, my friend. Uh, uh, Miley Cyrus is putting out good records. There's a new song called Prisoner with Dua Lipa, which is very good. And there's also a version of her song, Midnight Sky, that's got um, Stevie Nicks on it that is excellent. So those are good. See, I do like some things. Mike Holden, what's been your takeaway of the last seven days? Uh, uh, A programme that's been on the TV the past uh, seven days and has uh, repeated um, for a few years now is, uh, I don't know if there is an American uh, version of it, but it's called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. (laughs) And... um, what it has shown in the past week uh, has been two things. One has been uh, the, the, the very British um, Britishness that you've been talking about is that people uh, have been put into a very... Uh, uh, are you aware of it? Are, are your audience aware of it? Or um, just briefly say it, what it is. Go on, explain it, explain it. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, is usually shot in uh, the Australian jungle. And what they do is they take uh, a dozen or so celebrities in broader sense, um, and put them into a jungle together where they have to compete and together earn food, shelter, uh, and minor treats. And it sometimes uh, dissolves into raging arguments between the people. Um, this year, because of the COVID uh, restrictions, it's been filmed in Wales in a, in a, a castle. What has happened this year, and it's not unique, but what has happened this year is that all of these people who are uh, major and minor celebrities have got themselves together and they're all getting on really, really well. They're all, um, and one thing that, that has been very striking in, in this series that has brought it home to us all is that they're all hugging each other because we haven't seen anybody hug each other on TV for 12 months because we've all been sat in little boxes like this. Also, as a, as a minor point, one of the stars of it this year is a Radio 1 DJ called Jordan North, uh, who, when he was uh, in a, a pit full of scorpions and snakes, not snakes, um, decided that his way to overcome his fears was to go to his happy place. And Jordan North's happy place is Turf Moor, which is our football ground, because he's a Burnley fan. So uh, it's been quite the week for uh, the milk of humankind. Uh, the milk of human kindness. My takeaway is um, I love Formula One and it's something which I generally don't really talk about because it's one of the hardest of hard sports actually to sell and I get it when people say it's just cars going round around a track uh, repeatedly um, and it's uh, traditionally being the playground of, of the rich of the total elite so because of that when you have um, a working class boy and I really mean working class from an unfashionable city whose father had to have three jobs to be able to afford to buy him his go-kart for him to go through the ranks uh, to overcome um, every obstacle financial cultural institutional Uh, to become not only the world champion once but seven times to be the most successful uh, Grand Prix driver in history is something which I think all of us Brits can get behind. Now 
I know that there are some people who will say, but he's a tax exile. To be fair to Lewis Hamilton, and I've seen this written in many publications, is in the top 5,000 of uh, tax contributors to Her Majesty's Treasury. And he does legitimately work in at least 23 different countries in any one year because that's where it's completely unfair on him on that stuff it's absolute rubbish it it is incredibly unfair it's incredibly unfair and as somebody who's been watching formula one since 1984 and one of my heroes was Ayrton Senna and I remember him winning his first race in 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 Estoril um, in the rain where he lapped the whole field Ayrton Senna mercurial genius that he was behind the wheel was actually a dirty driver an incredibly eloquent man he was very proud of his brazilian roots but he was also he was he was also the son of a, a very rich family but also a very dirty driver it's controversial lewis hamilton has achieved what he's achieved by being the most gentlemanly and cleanest of drivers as well he's not relied on the tricks of a michael schumacher so what he's actually done is to become an exemplar within his sport in the most traditional of let's say british ways incredibly cleanly and fairly and he's done it from humble beginnings and he's now using his platform as a seven-time world champion to talk about issues of the lack of diversity and structural racism and because of him uh, mercedes painted their car black this year in light of Black Lives Matters and he's been really key in getting the Formula One drivers to take a knee and always to have emblems against racism. I think he's a Briton we all can be incredibly proud of what what he's actually achieved and that's my takeaway of the week really that I feel actually blessed as somebody who loves Formula One to come in in his first year of Formula One in 2007 and as a rookie be one point away from winning the world championship that never happens this is the stuff of roy the rovers stuff it's boy's own stuff we all should be incredibly proud of this man and uh, as his britons he should actually we should all need to get behind him and say they need to be knighted that's my takeaway of the week um he's the best of british um steve o'neill where can people catch up with you on social media sir at, at uh, steve zero neil on twitter smashing mike holden where can people catch up with you in Blackburn? I am at Mike Holden 42 uh, on Twitter. In Burnley. Uh, and Mick Wright, where can people catch up with you in your wondrous work, sir? Broken Bottle Boy, at Broken Bottle Boy, pretty much everywhere. Brilliant. Well, I'm not going to tell you what my Twitter handle is because there's no point following me. Uh, it's but- at Royfield. Follow him. He might do better if more people follow him. Um, that's I'm on his list, but he hasn't got very many, so what can I do? <laughs> That's been us, folks, Mid-Atlantic, trying to uh, map out where Britain goes in the choppy seas of international affairs, economically and politically, post-2021. Whether it's all doom and gloom, I don't know. But one thing I do know is that we need to chart a new course. That's us, Mid-Atlantic. Don't forget, left of centre politics is right politics. we see you all again soon. Ta-ta, ta-ra a bit. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thank you. you off my mind off my mind lord knows i tried a million times million times oh oh. why can't you why can't you just let me go
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.